The covenant of grace is a lens for viewing the Bible. It is a manner for looking at all of Scripture. And it has a way to look at the end of the story as well. The doctrine of last things or end times or the coming of the Lord. Now, we've seen in the covenant of grace, if you're going to be consistent, you need to have baby baptism. And if you're going to be consistent, you need to follow theonomy. One law, because it's one church. Why would you have two laws if it's one church? We don't need two laws. And if you're going to baptize babies because they're church members, and if you're going to follow the same law, well, remember... The babies in the Old Testament, they ate manna. And the babies in the Old Testament, they ate the Passover. So let's have baby communion. That is a very rare view, or at least it seems to me to be rare. Nevertheless, it is the logical, logically consistent result of the covenant of grace. And now we want to ask, what happens if you go to the end of the story and you use the covenant of grace to follow through? I've listed some Prophecies of the, old, of the future from the Old Testament. Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me. I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Underline that phrase. Nations as your inheritance. The next phrase. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. Underline ends of the earth. Psalm 14, verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, underline, restores his captive people. Who is his captive people when this psalm was written? The nation of Israel. You see it right there. Jacob rejoices. Israel is glad. Israel and Zion. Four names, three different names for the nation of Israel in verse 7. And someday what will happen to them? They will be glad. They will be restored. Psalm 22, verses 27 to 29. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Underline all the ends of the earth. They're all going to repent. Next phrase. All the families of the nations. Underline that. All the families of the nations. 28. The kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. 29. All the prosperous of the earth. Underline that. All the prosperous. They will eat and worship. All those who get down to the dust will bow before him. I found these, by the way, well, either in the past or this year while reading through the book of Psalms for my devotions. There are so many references like this in the Psalms. I'm going to continue through the entire book, noting every reference to these prophecies of the future. Look at the next one, Psalm 45, 16 and 17. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes where? Underline in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered where? All generations. So all the earth is all geography. All generations is all time. Those are the future generations coming up after us. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. There's time again. Psalm 46, 9 and 10. He makes wars to cease. Underline, wars to cease. Where? Where are the wars going to be over? In the Ukraine? Yes, in the Ukraine. Where else? 
anywhere that calls itself the earth. If you can go somewhere and say you are still on the earth, he's going to stop the wars there. He breaks the bow, cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. Verse 10, cease striving or be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted where? And where else? In the earth. I've listed in Isaiah every passage that I could find that dealt with these future promises. There they are. What chapters? How many chapters are they in? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen of the sixty-six chapters in Isaiah at least have these amazing prophecies. Zechariah, famously, in Zechariah 9 through 14, I've only listed chapters 12 and 13 and 14 because those are so overwhelming. When it says, all the nations will go up to Jerusalem, but if a family doesn't go up on that family, there will be no rain. When has that happened? When has that happened that all the families have gone to Jerusalem to worship Jehovah? But one or two families said, oh, I don't think I'll make it. And God said, I'm going to punish your crops for it. When has that happened? And many other prophecies like this. But letter B, before you look at letter B, let me ask you. If I asked you for three categories that were represented in those prophecies I just read from Psalms, can you give me one of the three categories of blessings? There will be this kind of blessing or this kind of blessing or this kind of blessing. What kinds of blessings did we just talk about? What categories could we group these prophecies in? Revival. That's the first one. Christianity. That's letter A or number, number one under letter B. Christianity will be accepted universally. All nations, all peoples will love and honor Jesus Christ. Christianity will be accepted universally. What's the second category? Israel will be honored. You remember that from chapter 14, Psalm 14. But there are many, many, many other places like that. For example, where God gives the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Many people don't realize that just after giving the new covenant, he says, but if the stars can move out of their courses... If the sun or the moon can fail, then Israel will not be my people anymore. Have the stars stopped? Has the sun moved? Now, if we say Israel's been replaced by the church, as he does say, that was his bold heading. He puts it in all capitals so that you won't miss the point. The church is replacing Israel. Then I wonder, what do you do with Jeremiah 30? One, the new covenant. What do we say about those verses where God explicitly says, because if you know the story of Jeremiah, you know that prophecy was given when the people of Israel were taken out of their land into captivity around 586 BC. And in Jeremiah 29, he says to them for 70 years, 29 verse 10, for 70 years, I'm going to take you out of your land. And then in verse 11, but I know the thoughts I have toward you. Thoughts 
of peace and hope to give you hope in a future. And then later he tells them what that future is. There's going to be a new covenant. Just because you're down there in Babylon, do not say to yourself, oh, he's cast off his people. He has not done it. Have the stars stopped shining? Is the sun still rising? Then he has not forgotten Israel. And if you say, well, Israel is now the church. Oh, so ethnic Israel, he did forget. Oh, you mean he didn't forget the church? Oh, so you believe there was a church in the Old Testament. I see. So Israel is the church. Israel doesn't even replace the church. I'm sorry, the church doesn't replace Israel. The church just is Israel. And that is where the covenant of grace moves toward. Number three, third category. Letter B, number three, prosperity. Universal prosperity. Justice and prosperity will satisfy everyone. Poverty and wars will end all over the world. So if the covenant of grace is accurate, then we could argue with this syllogism. Proposition number one. The church is the same in substance and essence as the people of God in the Old Testament. Who argues proposition number one? Who argues for proposition number one? The church is the same in substance and essence as the people of God in the Old Testament. Well, John Calvin does. And O. Palmer Robertson does. And Covenant Theology does. The Westminster Confession does. And Herman Vitzius, the Doctrine of the Covenants. Yes. Covenant theology consistently argues proposition number one. That's not controversial. The church is the same in substance and essence as the people of God in the Old Testament. Well, if you believe that, that's a big one. But if you swallow that one, the covenant of grace, then proposition number two. The people of God in the Old Testament were repeatedly promised a worldwide revival. Now, you can do the same thing with this syllogism that we've done with the others. Look at proposition number one and circle the two terms. Term number one, church. Term number two, people of God in the Old Testament. And you can write down there, church, number one, people of God, number two. Then we're going to go to proposition two, and we'll see terms two and three. Proposition two, the people of God, underline or circle people of God and mark down what number? Two. People of God in the Old Testament were repeatedly promised a worldwide revival. Circle revival, mark down number three. Conclusion, the church, circle church and write down what number? Number one, the church should anticipate what? Circle revival and mark down number what? Can anyone deny proposition number two? The people of God in the Old Testament were repeatedly promised a worldwide revival. I just read you the verses. And I put many more on here, and there's so many more. The people of God in the Old Testament were promised a worldwide revival. We know proposition number two comes from Scripture. It is the moral syllogism. It's the second proposition of the moral syllogism. It comes straight from Scripture. Proposition one, we know for sure, is the covenant of grace. We know proposition number one is there if you hold to that system. So if you hold to the covenant of grace, and if you hold to proposition number two, then conclusion... The church should anticipate the revival. So letter D, what will this look like? 
the world will get better. I ask you, is that what you're seeing in your life from the time of your birth until now? Do you see more Christian churches, more serious Bible-believing Christian churches? Do you see percentage of the population? Because remember, our population tripled, what, in the last 50 years or something? I don't know, 100 years maybe. The population is growing so quickly. Is the church growing at the same speed as the population? Are we seeing people converted as quickly as we're seeing people born? Are biblical godly churches large and flourishing? Some are, but it's very few. It's so rare that if you find out there's one man who has a church of 2,000 or 3,000, the whole world will know his name. Right? But I'll remind you, that man, for example, John MacArthur, is living in a province with, what, 30 million people? And there's millions of people in his city. And he's got 3,000 of them? You tell me in a city of, what, 5 or 8, 10 million people, he's got 3 million What's that? 3,000. I'm sorry, 3,000? Is that, is that really the church getting better? I, I mean, I, bl- I bless God for that godly man and other godly men. But are things getting better? Well, let's look at it. Things getting better. The world is getting better. If sameness and unity rule our Bible reading, then the church will bring in the golden age. When I say the golden age, I mean the millennium. Millennium means thousand years. So if you want, you can mark down thousand years. What book of the Bible gives us the number 1,000? Revelation. We get the number 1,000 from the book of Revelation. Millennium means 1,000. Time of 1,000. So the millennium is the time of the 1,000 that Revelation is talking about. In the Old Testament, you could call it a golden age. Peace and happiness and prosperity and wealth. Christianity and churches. In one sense, everyone believes that this revival is coming. We all believe that these verses in Roman numeral 1, letter A, are going to take place. But will it be heaven or will it be earth? That's our question. But don't we all believe someday that all the enemies of God will be removed and there will be perfect peace and happiness and no more crime and sin and problems? But if we are still in the covenant with the Old Testament saints, then what should we be expecting? The prophecies of the Old Testament saints. We should be looking forward to those. And I ask you, in the verses I gave you, is there any reference to Jesus coming back? I don't know of them. There's very few references to the second coming in the Old Testament. You can find the first coming. You can find the incarnation. But there are not many verses that talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So if you believe in unity, then what should you do? Read your Old Testament, read Isaiah, read Psalms and say, these were promised to Israel, but I am Israel. Israel and the church are the same thing. The covenant of grace, it's all one. I I circumcise my baby by the waters of baptism And I give my baby the manna and the Passover by giving my little child a drop of 
wine on his tongue and by giving him a little cracker when he's two years old at the Lord's table. And I believe in theonomy so that eventually we should have the laws of the Old Testament as the constitution for our government. And I, then I'm going to follow consistently. I'm going to take all of Israel's prophecies and they're for me. They're for us. They're going to happen because we're in the same covenant. Now, if you are looking for this happy, peaceful earth where believers are prospering, that view is called, you can see it in your notes in number three, letter D, number three. That view is called post, post millennial. Post means after. Millennium means thousand. Post millennium. After the millennium. Jesus will come back after millennium. So the golden age is going to come in by the power of the church. Now, to be fair, I am sure all the post-millennialists would say the golden age will come in by the power of Jesus Christ working through the church. Just like some people try to give a new title to the book of Acts and they call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit through his apostles rather than calling it the Acts of the Apostles. In my understanding, that's just an effort to, um, to act like you're extra spiritual. Of course, any good thing that happens is done by Jesus Christ working in me. Of course. But let's, we're trying to be clear about what doctrine is being taught. And the doctrine in post-millennialism is the church is going to win. All of our churches are going to go to 100, then 500, then 1,000, then 10,000. And there's going to be three churches of 10,000 people in Elam. (laughs) And there's going to be another church of, say, 4,000 people in Mpani. And in Valdezia, there will be two churches probably of 7,000 each. That is the doctrine of post-millennialism. The church is going to win. Our evangelism is going to work. Our prayer meetings are going to win. We are going to see all of the prophecies come to pass. Doesn't the Old Testament talk about revival? Doesn't the Old Testament rarely mention the second coming? So stop looking for the second coming. Remember, you are the church of the book of Psalms. David is gone, but the church of David is still here. You are in the church. So if you're still in the church of David, then take all of David's prophecies from the book of, from the book of Psalms. (laughs) Take all the prophecies from the book of Psalms and believe in them for today. It's going to happen. If we are the true Israel in the same story, in the same covenant as the church who received Isaiah and Jeremiah and the rest of the prophets. No one denies the first two questions I just asked. Those are the two. Look at these two questions. Does the Old Testament commonly mention revival? Yes, we all agree with that. No one doubts that. Question number two. Does the Old Testament rarely talk about the second coming? Yes, we all agree with that. Question number three. Are we the true Israel? Are we in the same covenant as the church? Now, only covenant theologians will say yes to that. But if you say yes to that third question, then what you're saying is we should be expecting what? Right now, we should be looking for it and anticipating it. We should not 
be counting that Jesus will come back today because Jesus cannot come back until post-millennium. What does post-millennium mean? After-millennium. What is millennium? Thousand years or the golden age. It's the kingdom. It's, the, it's the, all the prophecies. It's peace and prosperity. Jesus can't come back until all the security companies have closed down. Jesus can't come back until the policemen have all lost their jobs. Because there's no more need for police. Jesus can't come back until there are no more public schools because all the dads are teaching their kids by themselves. Jesus can't come back until missionaries are done. Hebrews 8, they will not teach anyone his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know the Lord from the smallest to the greatest. So as long as we're sending out missionaries, it can't happen. That is the second coming because we're not done with the millennium. Hebrews 8 verse 11 is very clear. And Hebrews 8 11 is a quotation from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. The new covenant is not fully here until they all say, we don't need any more teachers. Do they need teachers in Mozambique? Do they need teachers in Zim? Does your house need a teacher? Should we be raising our boys to be teachers and missionaries? then Jesus can't come back yet, according to this view. And this is the view you have to take if you believe there's going to be a revival. And there's not much talk about the second coming. So let's start looking for the revival. Where's it at? Where's it at? It's got to come. You don't look for the second coming. You look for revival. It's interesting. In the biography I read of David Livingston by Blakey, I found numerous places where David Livingston talks about the time when the church will triumph. And he even talks about right now we're evangelizing in Africa and there are very few people who are coming. But he says in one place, I'm, I'm anticipating a day in 50 or 100 or 200 years when every sermon from every missionary will have multitudes of converts. Brother Nyalungu, are we seeing multitudes of converts from every sermon. We're going to preach for a hundred sermons to try to get five. In David Livingston's book, what was he looking for? He said, I know right now very few Africans are saved, but someday in the future, in 50 or 100 or 200 years, the missionaries are going to be coming and they're going to preach. Was David Livingston looking for the second coming? Livingston thought there's going to be a great revival. It's not going to happen while I'm alive. He even said it. I'm going to pass off. My kids will go and others will come. But eventually the revival will come. I have not found one reference from David Livingston in that entire book to the second coming. But why would you talk about the second coming? If the church and Israel are the same, then why wouldn't you take all of the prophecies of the Old Testament given to Israel, which is the church? And what do those prophecies talk about? Three categories. We already dealt with these. What are the three categories? It's the three words that I put in italics. Christianity is going to win. Israel is going to be safe. And the whole world will have prosperity. 
Those are the three categories prophesied in the Old Testament. And I ask you, are we seeing those? No, we're not. Well, if you follow the covenant of grace, then you need to cling to those promises. We do cling to those promises, but loosely. We hold more fully to what promises? My Lord is coming. He is my blessed hope. Titus 2 verse 13. Do you know this verse? Maybe you need to memorize it. Titus 2 verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What was Paul looking for? Was he looking for the day when Nero would be replaced by a Baptist Christian? Was Paul looking for the day when the Sanhedrin would all be baptized? Paul said, I want you, Titus. They're about to cut my head off. Titus, look for something. It's your hope. Titus, your only hope is the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if you hold to the covenant of grace... You should rather go back to those Old Testament prophecies because those are prophecies for the church. You need to hang on to them and grip them with all your heart. Uh, Letter E, just briefly. The second coming is our only hope. I've just briefly talked about this here. Another way to read the Bible is to say, those promises are so beautiful and wonderful that they must be a result of the Lord Jesus coming back. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Are you following me at all? I just said those promises. Which promises? The ones about Christianity is going to win and Israel is going to be safe and prosperity and wealth and no more crime and no more wars and all the criminals will be gone and we won't lock our doors at night and there'll be no keys for the car. All the cars will be push button. There won't be any driver's licenses because no one will lie. You won't need a license. You just say, oh, my name is Alpheus and they'll believe you. That would be pretty nice. Well, those promises sound so great. I can't imagine them them happening any other way other than what? Jesus has to come back and do it. In this view, all the promises will be fulfilled after a great change. Look at that. How do these guys talk? Do they like the word change? Change for them is like kryptonite to Superman. You can't say change around them. You have to say what? Essentially the same. Same substance, same essence, unified, continuing. But if we are going to see all those prophecies fulfilled, I'm going to need a massive change. I'm going to need a miracle worker. The king of kings, the lord of lords, the prince of peace, the son of God, the one who holds the worlds in his hands. I'm going to need him to come and do it himself. And that is the promise in the New Testament. Peter describes the earth and its works as being entirely consumed. What could be more different? What could be more changeful? On page 12, what could be less continuous than that? That's not continuous. That's not unity. That's difference. It's a major difference. Christ will return, sinners will be judged, wars will cease. This is very different from what we're seeing today. 
And then the great majority of the earth's population will serve the one true God and his son for a thousand years. This way of reading scripture is called what? Pre-millennial. Pre means before. Post means what? After. Pre means before. Pre-millennium. Before the millennium. Before we can ever see the prophecies fulfilled. We need the king. We can't have it unless the king comes. There's no hope unless the king comes. We are hopeless without the king. That's why he's our blessed hope. It is his glorious appearing we are going to need. But this way of scripture does not. This way of reading the scripture does not fit with the covenant of grace. This way of reading scripture leads us to expect change. The covenant of grace leads us to expect unity. So let me put these words up here that I, I don't know if I've written up in the study so far. They're ugly words, but you need to know them. Discontinuity. What an ugly word. And then continuity. These are the books that PhD, these are the words that PhDs put in their books. Discontinuity. Can you see continue in there? There's continue. Continueness. Not continue. Discontinuity means it doesn't, it doesn't keep going. It's a change. It's a shock. It's a shape. It's shaking up. This discontinuity is what I see when I read the New Testament. Continuity is what the covenant of grace sees. Continue, continue. Abraham, he's a church member just like me. Just like, the same, continuity. So, what are some objections? Let me give you two objections briefly and then we'll be done. Letter A. These prophecies are not physical. They are spiritual. When you read about Christianity over all the world, when you read about Israel being safe, when you read about prosperity, wake up. This isn't talking about winning the lottery. It's talking about in your heart. No, 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 no. All those prophecies are being fulfilled right now in my heart. I know out in the world we've got wicked criminals as our presidents. And we've got evil things happening. And just this week in Nigeria, Muslims killed 20 people who called themselves Christians. What an evil, dangerous, wicked world. But in my heart, there's peace and happiness and rest. In my heart, there's no crime. In my heart, there's no more war. Friends... All of the Old Testament prophecies are talking about inside my heart. So I'll just tell you, all your, you know, Seth, I had a problem with you from the first time you started talking, but I just want to tell you right now, Seth, my big problem with you, you missed it. You keep saying that the world's going to see a revival. It's all in our hearts. That's the objection. Answer, then why did God inspire words like all the earth? Why why did he put that word? I I know if you change around the letters of the word earth, you get heart. 
But that's not the way we want to do our exegesis, right? I, I know, just look at, look, at, look at earth there and take the H from the end and put it at the beginning. You get the word heart. But that doesn't mean, that, that's not what God was meaning, right? If God wanted to write the word heart, could he have written the word heart? Did he write the word heart? He wrote all the nations, not nation, nations. You would think if he's just talking about the church, why not write all the nation? Why does he say all the nations? Why does he say all the peoples? Why does he even name the names of the countries? In, in I believe it's Isaiah 25, he even names Egypt. He's going to redeem Egypt. And he names other countries, and then he names Israel. And he said, they will all be my peoples. Why does he say he's going to save Egypt and Israel if what he really means is he's going to save, he's going to save a few Egyptian hearts and a few Jewish hearts? And what do these words even mean? And when he says, when he says that they're going to take all their guns and their weapons and beat them into plows and shovels, that's supposed to be a picture in my heart how I'm going to stop cursing God and I'm going to start praying to God like a shovel and a pick is a picture of prayer and the gun was a picture of me drinking alcohol why not write alcohol and prayer why why say guns and swords why say those words that is an honest question and it has never been fully dealt with in the literature that I've read I've read all of Sam Storm's book. I've read The Momentous Event by Banner of Truth. I've read uh, Raymond and Frame on these questions. I, I'm trying to do my due diligence. Louis Burkhoff, of course. I am trying to read carefully what the amillennialists say. But I have never even seen them try to answer that question. Why is it that God put down words that are so different from what you're saying? You're saying it's all in our hearts. But God wrote words like all the nations. Israel, Jacob, if the sun and the moon can stop, then Israel won't be my people. Why not say if the sun and the moon can stop, then your heart will fall away from the Lord? What, what? He doesn't say that. He says Israel. So my answer to the objection. But, but didn't you think the objection really sounded... Uh, you, you be honest, weren't you a little bit shaken? Well, oh, that, I guess that sounds good. I mean, the blessings are in our heart, right? Huh, you were a little bit shaken. But just go right back to the words. Amillennialism falls apart in the Old Testament. It cannot handle the Old Testament. And I'm going to argue, if I ever get the chance to get to this point in my argument, that post-millennialism cannot handle the New Testament. My argument is the New Testament cannot go post-mill. And the Old Testament cannot go amill. So we need a system that takes both the old and the new. Go ahead and try to build one. You try to build one that has both the old and the new. I'm pretty sure what you're going to come up with. Objection number two, letter B. I believe in the covenant of grace. I hold to it. I've got to admit. I've been a little bit troubled, Seth, while you've been talking about the covenant of grace. Um, I agree with most of what you said, not all, but most of what you've said. But I got to be honest here, Seth. I also believe that the earth will get worse and worse 
then I believe Jesus will return and he will set up his kingdom for a thousand years. What is that position called? Historic premillennialism. How can we answer a man who says, I believe in the covenant of grace and I also believe that Jesus will come back and then start a thousand year kingdom? How can we answer that? Well, since you interpret the words of the prophecies literally, why do you interpret Israel as the church? Because the covenant of grace says Israel is the church. Abraham is a church member. Some very good and very godly men believe in historic premillennialism. And they would be the closest to my position. I believe the biblical position. And when I've heard some of them teach and preach and write books like George Ladd, I'll read Ladd and think, yes, 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 yes. 90% of the book. And then I'll read something and I'll say no. And I'll write in the margin of a George Ladd book. C-O-N-T-R-A, contra. Contra means you made a contradiction. And then I'll, I'll flip back to the other page and I'll write contra of the page number. And then I'll go back to that first page number and write contra of the other page number. So that any time that I find that, I'll know where the contradiction is. Or when I die and my grandkids are flipping through my books, so, oh, grandpa found that. And what I find when I read George Ladd is, wow, what a thoughtful man. Wow, he was, he saw a lot of things, but he's not always consistent. He's more consistent, thankfully, than the amillennialist. He's more consistent than the postmillennialist because he de-emphasizes the covenant of grace, but it's still there. And when I find it, wait, 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 circle, covenant of grace. Let's jump back to here. Now, what about here? Those two don't fit. So I would ask, first of all, to a godly, historic premillennialism, premillennialist. Since you interpret the words of the prophecies literally, why do you interpret Israel as the church? Is that a consistent hermeneutic? But I will admit, this is the most difficult position to answer because it takes the, word, the actual words of Scripture so seriously. In fact, of all the covenantal views, it seems that this view takes the words of Scripture the most seriously. Nevertheless, uh, historic premillennialism sees a replacement of Israel by the church to some degree or another. And it is that replacement that I don't fit, that I don't think you can cleanly drag through all the texts of the New Testament. Any questions or comments tonight? If you hold to the covenant of grace then I think that's going to affect not only the way you see the Old Testament, but the way you see Revelation. And you're going to have to be, if you're consistent, you're going to have to hold on to those prophecies. And you can't be the amillennialist who says it's all in my heart because that's just not fair to the words. And if you're going to do that, then you're going to believe in post-millennialism or the, the success and triumph and victory of the church. Any questions? Yes, sir. Same thing. You don't take the word seriously. I don't think you take it. Uh, but there's a different set of words like Isaiah 65. A sinner will die at 100 years old. That's in the millennium. So if you think that's heaven, how's a sinner going to die in heaven? 
But that's not the only passage. There's many passages. Um, um, Isaiah chapter 2 or Zechariah chapter 14. When people don't go up to Jerusalem, on them there will be no rain. So what, in heaven, there's going to be some guys who don't worship Jehovah? And then on those guys, there's going to be no rain? Oh, and then the quintessential millennial passage, Revelation 20. What happens at the end of the millennium? A group of people gather to oppose God. Well, premillennialists have a way to answer that. We say, look, even though a majority of the world was converted, not all were converted. But if you're amillennial, you've got to say, that's happening in heaven. Either that's happening in your heart, in which case the words don't make sense. Or it's happening in heaven, in which case the words don't make sense. Good question. Yes, sir. That's a good question. The question is, is this group, the post-millennialists, are they the ones who are being lazy or are they the ones who are being active hard workers? Is that your question? My, my experience and my reading, I'd still like to read more, but this is where I'm at. I'd be glad to be corrected if anyone can find books or sources. But to this point, I see two groups, two broad groups of post-millennialists. One group would be a William Carey kind of group, an Ian Murray kind of group. And that group would be dedicating themselves to evangelism and prayer meetings. They would be saying, we're going to go out and evangelize. We're going to lead sinners to Christ. Jonathan Edwards, William Carey, Ian Murray, those men all believed in post-millennialism. And those men, I saw them hardworking, out, evangelizing. Now I would ask them, how do you hold to these other... I'd, I'd be glad to talk with them and hear what they say. They're more godly than me. So that's one group. It's the group of William Carey and Jonathan Edwards and Ian Murray. Those men are preaching and evangelizing and they're amazing. And I would gladly give my daughter to that kind of a post-millennialist, even though I think he's inconsistent. The second group of post-millennialists would be more today... And those are the groups that I see that really concern me. They promote alcohol constantly. They promote um, making money, starting businesses, uh, engaging the culture, making movies, um, influencing politics. I don't want to put them all in the same group, but some post-millennialists of today, this might be a subset of that. So... So the group I'm mentioning, I'll call them the engage culture group. There's the group of evangelize the world group of post-millennialists. And then there's a group of maybe engage the culture. Maybe there's two groups in there. But I know some in that group because I'm, I didn't meet the man, but I met the teachers of the boy. And then I saw the newspaper clippings from his school. Um, Wheaton College, a post-millennial institution published in their newspaper a boy who was going as a model for he was going to go to California and get a job as a model and they called him a missionary to Hollywood he's going to make tons of money he's going to put on nice clothes and get people to take pictures of him and he's a missionary and they're thinking probably was something like hey we need Christians to be Christian lawyers and Christian doctors because eventually Everything has to be taken over by the, Bible. by the Christians. 
So we, we're going to need Christians to be Christian models as well. So anytime you're going to be a Christian paint salesman, we'll call you a missionary. If you're going to be a Christian businessman and buy Toyota, we'll call you a missionary to Toyota, a missionary to the factories. And what I see from that is very troubling because one of the loudest voices in that camp has a large church. And this man is building a very large church building. He's trying to make it like a cathedral to show that, see, we still have beautiful buildings just like 400 years ago. When I checked his website, the church website, I found only one missionary. One missionary from a massive church. And you're asking people to give you money to build a cathedral. And you're obviously taking money from your church to build a cathedral. But you're sending out one missionary. And guess what? That missionary was to West Africa. But he was living in America translating the Bible. Which is... I want you to translate the Bible. But sitting in America doing Zoom calls with people in a West African country so you can translate the Bible, that's not at all William Carey, who goes to India once and never comes back and loses his kids and loses his wives and prays for his boys to all go there for the sake of the heathen. That's, that's not the same. I see two groups today. Maybe there's more. That's what I see. I see a group that is de-emphasizing evangelism and missions. They w- I don't think they'd admit it. If they were here, they wouldn't say, that's us, we don't like missions. I don't think they would say that, but I would say, show me, show me your, your bank book. You show me the money you're giving. Show me the percentage. Elam Baptist Church is premillennial, and they were giving 50% of their money while I was the pastor to missions. That's premillennial evangelism. I don't care if you're post-mill or amill. If I see you starting a church and giving 50% of your money in missions, you can take my daughter. That kind, of, that kind of attitude. So my experience has been the post-millennialists are very active. But I don't always see them active in missions. And I mentioned this in the missions class. But I'm also concerned for post-millennialists because there is a great danger to call people Christian who are not why? What would, the, what would pull you to call them Christian, though they're not Christian? Caleb? We're trying to bring in the millennium that great time of revival. And we're trying to prove that we were right. See? It's happening. All the stuff in Psalms, look, it's happening right now. All the nations. So those kind of people will say, Africa, Southern Africa is a majority Christian uh, place. And Zambia is Christian. Malawi is mostly Christian. We can send some missionaries if we want, but we don't really need to because they're they're Christian. And those same kind of people say, pretty soon, Malawi is going to be sending missionaries to America. Now look, America's in trouble. America's in trouble. But brothers, I invite you to go visit. The number of churches, the solid churches, the number of missionaries they're sending out, it's, it's no, it's nowhere near what Malawi is like. You can find a Bible preaching church in almost any town in America. Almost any town. Can you find a real biblical five solo church in any town in Malawi? Good question. Anything else?